That's fine. You need to take a lap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to take a lap. <laughs> um, I'm I'm only thinking. It feels like there's still quite a bit of yeah. content. Yeah. So I'm open to whatever too. You're my only meeting this afternoon, oh, and I just want to. I have to be meeting. at the field at three twenty. So I've got plenty of time. Uh, let me just look at my. I'm just thinking like. Are you good with another hour? I'm fine with another hour. Okay, well, then maybe we just go with it. You're fine with it. I don't yeah, want to. Let's just go with it. Good, good. So, what else right. do you have just like, why did we pay you for your cigar? <laughs> like, give, give it, like, what? Well, how did, why you, did you collect it? How did you earn? How did, <laughs> how did you earn this about it? <laughs> All right, well, let's see what else I got. You know, the good kid growing up, that was me. I was voting most likely to be a priest. And I thought I could. Not let anyone down My definition of the way to be kind Was to lose myself And to shun desire I thought I had Life figured out But I So you we'll got to take your sabbatical from mid-May to mid-August. What did you find? When you like shut off the negative emotions, you also start shutting off the positive emotions as well. And I, I couldn't get to joy because I was so busy trying to suppress grief. You know, you think your anxiety is about one thing, but then you realize it's actually not about that. I just know at one point I was sitting on a like little yard couch thing and I just broke down crying he just put his arm around me and honestly I don't remember almost anything that anybody said the only thing I remember uh, that was said Johnny you you said we see you and to experience the the face of Christ in the face of the other I mean that I think there's just such beauty What I realized this summer is how hard it is to let yourself feel up by God. To be called into relationship with God like a small child, as an object of love. Like that's the beginning of the, the foundation of the Christian life. Yeah, it's like knowing it at a, like a, the, the gut level. I remember thinking, I think he'll come out of this. If he does, I want to work with him. Um, now this gets a little bit back to like what the trigger was at the beginning of the sabbatical with this sense of like, I just needed to like go deeper into like sacrifice. And if you're not selling all you have and giving to the poor, you're just not doing it right and compromise. And, um, and so the, I would say another thing I learned is that the hardest path is not always or automatically the right path. And I think I, I mean, I, I, I know that I've known that intellectually, uh, but I think emotionally, like psychologically, like at a deep guttural level, I think I haven't quite known that. Or like maybe it's a better way to say like, I know that for you, Caroline, let's say, but I don't know that I know it for myself, right? So like if you came to me asking advice about should you go here or there, I wouldn't find the hardest path and say you should do that. But when I'm thinking about what I should do, I go with the hardest path. Or if I don't go with the hardest path, I feel a little bit compromised and guilty that I didn't take the hardest path. You know, and um, this is one of the things that my counselor 
put his finger on like pretty early and he's like, I think you need, you need to have a different, he's like, I hope I don't offend you, but your, your view of discernment's like really pretty bad. <laughs> like, your view of discernment? My view of discernment. Oh, yeah, man. Spiritual, I'm like, doggone, I think I got a pretty good <laughs> view of spiritual discernment. What a naming of like. I know, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but I think he was right in terms of like how I discerned where God was calling me. Uh, like I gave lots of sort of psychological weight, spiritual weight to like, what was the hardest path? And, um, and so I, I, I began to think back on this and realize and like, not just think about this, you know, video I watched at the beginning of the sabbatical, but like all through my life, uh, I have had that mindset and I began to think about like things that I have written in the past, um, things that I've taught, uh, and I realized like, I, that is true. Like, that's how I, that's how I think. And, um, 20 years ago, there was a, a pastor preached a, a sermon that then became pretty famous. Probably a lot of listeners maybe even know, uh, I've heard the sermon or, you know, w- would have heard of the pastor, but, uh, generally I, I, I think he's done a lot of really good stuff. And so this isn't a critique of that, but the way that I heard the sermon, I think kind of illustrates the way, uh, that I've navigated so much of my life, which you know, he was, he was talking to a bunch of young people, kind of young millennial, uh, like early 20 types, like 20 years ago. And, um, was, was at a big conference, you know, and, um, he was comparing like the life lived, uh, in pursuit of the American dream with the life lived in pursuit of, of, of Christ and his kingdom. And he talked about how a couple of the missionaries uh, from his church, older ladies, single, uh, who were serving, and I forget where they were serving, maybe Indonesia or, or you know, somewhere foreign lands, uh, were coming down a mountain pass in their car, if I remember the story right, and, and uh, the brakes gave out in their car and they, they plummeted over the edge of the, the mountain pass and, and were killed. And, and uh, he said, people, you know, come to me and they say, oh, that's a tragedy, that's a tragedy, you know. And he said, that's not a tragedy. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he pulled out this uh, little clipping from Reader's Digest, and it was about early retirement. And so he read about, you know, I don't know, John and Jane Smith or whoever, who took early retirement, moved down to Florida, you know, at at 55, and he, uh, you know, they they, they cruise in their yacht, he plays softball, you know, with the league, and, and, you know, then they walk along in the, in the evenings and they collect shells and he goes, I'll tell you what's a tragedy. He says, that's a tragedy. And he says, what are you going to tell God when you get before him on the day of judgment? What are you going to say? Look at my shells. Do you see my shells? And uh, it was a really, it was a really powerful sermon. I mean, if anyone heard it, you remember it. I mean, uh, and there was so much, I think that was good about that sermon because he was trying you know, in a sermon, you're trying to, the more, when you try to nuance stuff too much, you lose some of the, like, the rhetorical force. And he was trying to make the point that, like, a life of self-indulgence is, in the American dream, like, is just not what you should live your life for. Um, but the way that I heard it, in any case, is a pitting 
in opposites of being a, a missionary and and dying in a car accident where you plummet over the edge of a cliff in kind of a martyrdom sort of fashion or pursuing self-indulgence uh, and retiring early to Florida. And so he was strongly criticizing the early retirement to Florida and holding up as admirable, uh, you know, this missionary couple that died, um, these missionary ladies that died. And, um, and I remember really, really resonating, uh, with that sermon, uh, when he preached it. And of course, if you have to pick between self-indulgence or, you know, martyrdom, I mean, martyrdom is in the Bible. Self-indulgence is, is also in the Bible, but not praised, you know? And so you gotta, you know, you gotta go with martyrdom, but, and that's how I have like framed up so much of my life that if it leads to some version of martyrdom, then it is good. And it and God is pleased. And if it leads to some version of comfort, then God is not pleased, and it's a waste of your life. And that was, I mean, the, the sermon was called "Don't Waste Your Life," and that's how he, uh, you know, how he framed it. And it went on. Again, how I came away from that was: if the path is easy, you're wasting your life. If the path is hard and kind of in the realm of martyrdom then you're, you're pleasing God. And that has just permeated so much of my spirituality, I think, uh, in ways that have robbed me of joy. Uh, because I, 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 and this is where I think my counselor helped to, to, to press in on this, is that you don't discern God the fork in the road isn't discerned by which is the hard path and which is the easy path. Um, the fork, fork in the road is discerned by where is the loving countenance of Christ calling you. And if the loving countenance of Christ is calling you to Indonesia to plummet over the edge of a cliff in a car, then like that's the right path. And if the loving countenance of Christ is calling you to Florida to walk along the beach collecting shells and being filled with gratitude for the world that God has made and the beauty of creation. And in that space, worshiping and receiving the love of God and extending it however he calls you to do it there, then that's where you go, right? So it's not just find the hardest path, find the tallest cross, find the most painful realm of crucifixion. That's where God wants you to go. And I just, that, that was a, um, again, I, I've actually, I, I've counseled people opposite of my own, like, convictions on that, right? So, like, I, you know, I remember talking with, with a friend from my small group who was faced with a, a career choice, and he's like, I don't want to go, and, and I said, well, just because it's a hard path and, it's, and it's, it's difficult doesn't mean that's God's will for you. So, like, I can say that thing, but, like, in terms of my own life, I just haven't been able uh, to live into that space in all with all the freedom. And, um, and that has been kind of revolutionary for me to like rethink that category for my own, uh, my own way of discerning like what God's will is and, and has given me, um, has given me an appreciation for the priority 
of following Christ, not following just what is hard or what is easy. And, um, and that it is often the case that Christ calls us into green pastures. And sometimes he calls us into the shadowed valley. But in both cases, when he calls us to those things, he calls us to them through his loving countenance and his kindness. And it's just as likely, in fact, even more likely and normative, I think probably, that he's calling us into green pastures than he is constantly calling us into the shadowed valley. And I, and I think about this like even as a parent with, with my own kids, right? It's like, I don't want my kids to just have like a life of ease and self-indulgence. For sure, that's not what I want for them. But I want them to in, enjoy life, right? I want them to, to, be, to live life with gratitude and with thankfulness and blessing and not feel like every time they receive something good, they have to feel guilty about it or sacrifice it or throw it over or, um, you know, I, I just think there is a, there's a gentleness that a good parent, not a permissiveness, but a gentleness that a good parent brings to its kid that I was not to his, his or her kid that I was not allowing in a sense, God to bring to me. Uh, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the, I think foils from a sermon like that, which obviously wouldn't be the intention, is just the, I, I, one of the challenges that is just how individual-centric it is. Because like the whole idea is like, well, then I'm not going to waste my life. And so then the pursuit of not wasting your life and, and the, the possible positive things you're going to do in doing that really doesn't become about extending love yeah. to the people. It's really just about me making sure I don't waste my life so that I could look at other people and say, they're wasting their life. I'm not wasting my life. And really there is this like very um, hard to see pride that is in that pursuit actually, as opposed to kind of like a community pursuit of as a whole church, we don't want to like waste this church. And so people have different callings within the church and, and even those same people have different seasons of life in which they have to embrace the Valley and they have to embrace the green pastures. Even the same people have that can have the same, you know, Mm. both green pastures and valleys and some at the same time. And you know what I'm saying? So it's like, but if it's like really about me making sure for my own self and for what people think about me, that I don't waste my life, then the thing I'm thinking I'm not wasting my life about really becomes quite wasteful because it was really about me. No, and, <laughs> and, and I think like this is, in a sense, part of my struggle, right, is like this feeling of like I need to do some version of sell all I have and give to the poor. But I got a wife and four kids, right? So like th- this isn't just me. Like I, like I, But like this feeling like no, like, I have to do it. Like, mm. I can't waste my life. Like, it's yeah. about me. Yeah. And, and 
And then the fear of like, what will this do to my family if I like followed through with this sense of like extreme conviction that I'm feeling? Um, and I, I just think like when you just, I mean, you're making a, 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 I think a right point, Johnny, is like when you get so fixated on, and again, I'll just speak for myself here. I won't try to put this on anybody else or the pastor that preached the sermon, but like yeah, you get so sure. fixated on, I got to follow the hardest path. Like you, you end up becoming bludgeoning, I think to yourself. And I think you become bludgeoning to the people that are with you. Right. I mean, like there, there's like the call on us as individuals is commiserate with, I think our larger context and who depends upon us and like what, what we need to do to be loving and extend love yeah. to those that Christ also is caring for. Right. It's like things get Murky when you consider the relational ecosystem. Yes, <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. That's yeah. a good way to say Pretty it. Pretty much all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. No and, and then this is that. where the problem of the like, don't like that pursuit of like, like it, you, you have to like totally ignore that ecosystem to be like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not going to waste my life and, 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 and I'm going to like yeah. show it, when, you know? And when everyone around you is like, what? And th that, is the path God has chosen for people. No doubt. I mean, I, I right. would think that's the path of those two women. Um, but to like, I guess to your point to assume, and you just have to really, really like with, yeah, I guess check the ecosystem. And um, it's fun to think of how much of a wizard Jesus was as he swam in said ecosystem. Yeah. Like he, he is just constantly doing his next right thing with, like in presence of his father, like in attuned with his father with like a million different things. And he'll like do something because the father said, and then people want to kill him. And then he does the next thing because his father said. And, and it seems yeah. like he's calling people at times both to the valley and to green pastures. No, right? that's right. So, and I, I just, you know, to make that point and should be clear, like I don't, but I, I, I want, don't want to be heard or saying, nor do I think that like what this means then is like that there is no call to the cross. I mean, I think, the, you, there's just no way to get around that. I mean, that is part of the Christian life. But like, I, you know, I feel like I, we experience the cross throughout our lives and we experience the resurrection throughout our lives. But I, I feel like, um, like the cross is for the resurrection, right? Like that, like God's point is not to take us to the cross. God's point is to get us to the resurrection. That's the point. And if, and it's like life is a gift and like, creation is a gift and everything that he's made is a gift to be received with gratitude and as an occasion for worship and, and, and in a sense chasing after cross crosses to hang ourselves on to make ourselves feel better about loving God. I just feel like there, there's a, there's a ends up being a weird form of like pride and self-righteousness that ends up emerging in that. Um, so, so far it doesn't seem like you've learned very much. Not, yeah, it's <laughs> just, just a pretty low-key sabbatical. Low-key stuff. Related to that, kind of this discerning God's call, I, I, the, 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 you know, the terror, the terror of that first month is like feeling like God is calling me to, to some unknown dark future of sacrifice. Christ is, you know, like that walking down the hall and like Christ is there just like pointing at the dark room and like go in there. 
and um and 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 just feeling paralyzed with fear like i can't go into that room like I, I can't bring myself to go in that room and then it's like not wanting to look back over my shoulder at jesus because he's just going to be there with a stern countenance and a pointing finger like we're not good until you go in that room and that probably was as much of anything like a big part of the anxiety that i had that first month was like, what if I'm being called to some like life altering form of sacrifice that will sunder me from like everything I know and love and hold dear. And if I don't do it now, I'm on the outs with Jesus. And then in the midst of my anxiety, not even being able to pray to Jesus because he's the one giving me the stern look. So it's like, where do I go for solace? I can't even go to Jesus for solace because he's the one that's telling me to go get up on the cross, you know? And, and it was, a, it was a fight to like, not just run away from Christ in the midst of that feeling because my perception of him was, was one of just a stern taskmaster who was threatening his anger. If I did not comply with that sense that I had, and as I sort of like kind of came out of that and sort of like was being reintroduced to, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, God bless him. <laughs> you know, It was like, but I know he does get angry. I mean, it's in the, it's in the Bible. You can't get away from it. He does get angry. So then I was trying to like wrestle through like, well, how, like, what do you do with like God's anger then Christ's anger? And, and, um, and, uh, and it, struck me, I mean, I was just reading this morning in Exodus uh, where God appears to Moses and he proclaims his name and he says, the Lord, the Lord, uh, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and how that the anger of God and the love of God are not sort of like equal opposites where you have kind of equal measure of wrath and equal measure of love and like God's got a carrot, he's got a stick and he kind of uses whichever one is needed to kind of in the moment to get you to do what you're supposed to do. And if you don't respond to love, then he brings out the stick and um, that they're not equal opposites, that God is very slow to anger and he doesn't use it as a first or second or even third resort. And when he does use it, it's a momentary snap to attention, like wake you up uh, from the moment. Um, but it's not the primary way that he calls us. And I, and I, guess no, I like my Tolkien. And uh, so I, I was thinking of this whole thing about God's anger, and I was remembering uh, in the scene from The Lord of the Rings in the first movie. It's in the books as well, but I think the movie does such a good job with it, where Bilbo is uh, just coming back from the party, and he's going to leave the ring for Frodo, if anyone's seen the movie. And um, he's uh, getting ready to leave, though, but he's, he's kind of second guessing whether he wants to really leave the ring. And so he's gonna, he starts to, to justify why he's going to keep it for himself. And Gandalf is uh, telling him, you know, it's, you got to put the ring back, you know, and, and Bilbo is arguing with him. And then Bilbo, the, the power of the ring is starting to get him. And uh, he starts to accuse Gandalf of wanting to steal it from him and to take it from himself. And then he's, and, uh, and Gandalf transfigures himself into this ominous presence. I mean, it's just such a, I think it's such a powerful moment in the movies and, uh, it's kind of th thunder sort of threatening. And, uh, 
and he, you know, talks to Bilbo very sternly and, uh, and he shocks Bilbo kind of out of the, um, the spell that the ring was putting on him. And then Gandalf like shrinks back down to like gentle Gandalf, meek and mild and Bilbo wilts and crumbles and he comes running, whimpering to Gandalf and like falls into his arms and Gandalf hugs him and, and uh, Gandalf says, I'm not trying to steal the ring from you, Frodo, or uh, Bilbo, I'm trying to help you. And, and, and Bilbo receives that. But what struck me, what strikes me in that scene is that Bilbo doesn't run to Gandalf until Gandalf shrinks. And I think I've had in my mind this idea that like sometimes Christ makes himself big and scary like that. And then he stays big and scary until we repent and we have to repent and like run back into his arms while he is like fierce and ominous. And only after we've repented, does he shrink back down? But I I think that's just not the way that Christ presents himself. It's like he, he can get big and ominous and somewhat scary, you know, kind of C.S. Lewis is, he's not a tame lion, you know, and he'll growl, but like, we don't have to repent into his wrath. We repent into his kindness. And I'm thinking of like that passage in, uh, you know, Romans chapter one starts talking about the, starts off talking about the wrath of judgment of God is revealed and makes us aware of sin. But then in Romans two, Paul says, but don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? And I think that it's not the awareness of God's wrath that leads to repentance. That makes us aware of sin. But what brings us to repentance is the kindness of God. And so I, I think like when I think about spiritual discernment and I think about like how does God call us into hard places, like he, sometimes he does need to rebuke us and maybe, you know, the thing he's calling us to do is a hard thing and he might need to rebuke us for ignoring him. But the call into the hard thing is done with love and compassion and with gentleness the rebuke is to wake us up, but the the repentance is fueled by a conviction of Christ's love for us. So does that make sense? Yeah, there's, uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says this, so I'll just take his word for it. I haven't scoured scripture to <laughs> he's probably right. this yet. If it's going to agree with what I just said, <laughs> then I'm sure he's right. <laughs> but something similar is that um, God doesn't, in, in the story of the Bible, God doesn't change his mind when he is decides to be gracious. He can't be talked out of grace and mercy and kindness yeah. and love, but he can be talked out talked of out wrath. wrath. Yep. And I was just like, that was just such an interesting way to think about yep. it. Um, because I, I think your point yep. of like the wrath of God can dominate the way we think about God or at least like what we're fearful to think about God that kind of clouds everything we think about him. And it's like, we, we like focus on his grace and love actually because we're kind of like scared of like what the wrath is as opposed to understanding the role of the wrath of God and that the, the dominant thing is the love of God. And we can go and look at the wrath of God because we have a proper appropriation understanding of what the grace and love of God actually is. Yeah. Um, and I think about this just even like in, in, 
I mean, one, I, I think that's very well said and very right. And I, I like that point. Like you, you do see, I mean, I just read it this morning again in, in Exodus, right? But like you do see God being talked out of wrath, but you don't ever see him being talked out of grace. Yeah. And even uh, Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like yeah. he talks God all the way down, right? To like, if you can just find 10 people then, right? Like yeah. he, like God was willing to cut lots and lots and lots of slack. And he's yeah. talking God down from his wrath. And you know? Moses with Israel. Moses with Israel, right? Yeah. In Exodus, right? So that I think is a, that's a, a beautiful and a good point. And I, and I just think like the, um, there's so much there even I think for those of us that have kids and we're parents where I know I've, I have in the past um, used wrath sort of like that uh, transfigured Gandalf moment. And then it, and then demanded compliance while staying big and transfigured. And it puts, you know, it puts our kids in a position of having to repent into the face of wrath and I just think that's just not, it's, it's not how God does it. And it's not healthy. It's not, you know, it's. Because fear is a terrible teacher. Yeah. Because then we're, we're not controls. repenting because of God's fear, because of, of God's kindness. We're repenting because of his fear. You know, I think, again, I, I think wrath makes us aware of sin, but wrath isn't the primary motive that enables repentance. You know, it's, uh, it's God's grace that enables repentance. So, um, um, which leads to the next thing that maybe this is, uh, if I had to like sum up everything I feel like I've learned this summer, maybe it gets down to this, but that experiencing and believing that the love God has for us is more foundational and essential than loving God. And I, I think it is, uh, what I realized this summer is how hard it is to be loved by God, to let yourself feel loved by God. Maybe it's a better way to say it because to receive love, I mean, it, you, 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 you contribute nothing, right? And you think about an infant with like a, with a parent, like the infant doesn't contribute anything. You know, they just receive love and to, to be called into relationship with God, like a small child as an object of love, like that's the beginning of the foundation of the Christian life. And if you race too quickly to like loving God in return in a way that you don't let yourself embrace the love that God has for you, then what you're loving God with is not the love that God has poured out into, into his, into our hearts. Right. It's, it, it ends up becoming our own like works righteousness type of love, you know, and it's, uh, it it feels sacrificial to love God. It feels noble to love God. It feels important to love God. All and it's all that in a sense is true. But it has to start with letting yourself experience and feel the love that God has for you. And I just think like I think for our church, you know, like what what should we focus on? Is do we focus on calling people to love God and to love others? And and certainly that's true because that's you know the greatest commandment of the law and the second greatest commandment but the gospel is not love god and others the gospel is god loves you and if you don't start with receiving the love of god you can't get to the to loving god and others you know that's so i, I felt very just stripped down 
uh, and bear um, this summer to where it's like I had nothing to offer God I felt like except to be an object of love. And that that's a hard, uh, that's a much harder place to be than it than you might think uh, when you get there. Um, but I think that's the foundation and the start of all that comes after it.
Our fourth and final part will come next week. <laughs>